Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew majors on showing that God's promises are yes and amen in the person of Christ Jesus. In showing us that Jesus is everything to which the Old Testament was pointing. That we've got one narrative, Genesis through Revelation, with Jesus being the central focus of every bit of it. Matthew 1.1, right out the gate, Matthew tells us that his, his gospel is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Jesus is explicitly identified as the promised son of David, that Jeremiah 23, 5-6 character, where it says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jesus is identified as that promised king, that son of David. And also he's the promised son of Abraham that in your seed or from one of your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's Christ. And although the David and Abrahamic fulfillments are mentioned explicitly, the fulfillment that's arguably the most central to Matthew's gospel is instead a, is hidden within the structure of the book. Matthew is a literary masterpiece. In its meticulous organization, it alternates between narrative sections and five teaching blocks. We've been through three of those teaching blocks already in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, in chapter 5 through 7, in the Missionary Discourse in chapter 10, in the Parabolic Discourse in chapter 13, and we'll get to later the Discourse on the Church in chapter 18, and lastly in 23 through 25, the Olivet Discourse. Now, how many teaching blocks was that again? It's five teaching blocks. The very fact that Matthew records five of Jesus' sermons points to Jesus as the new and better Moses. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which means five books of the law. Now Jesus delivers these five discourses. The Sermon on the Mount kicks, kicks off with Jesus going up into a mountain, right? He went up into a mountain. When he had sat down, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and he taught the masses, saying, he went up into a mountain just like Moses and he expounded on what throughout that Sermon on the Mount to set the tone of his ministry? He expounded on God's law. He showed the true intention of God's law over against the tradition of the elders which characterized the, the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. And his main point was that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Some will be in, some will be out, but they'll all be based on whether or not they recognize the revelation of Christ Jesus, that all of mankind will be separated. There's a separation coming, and it's revelation through Christ and separation based off your response to the teachings of Christ Jesus. He couldn't be a more important figure in history, could he? We know we see that throughout all these discourses. That's the emphasis. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, he will be compared to a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on a rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that that house and it fell and great was the fall thereof. Revelation of Christ's words and whether you hear them or not de determines your destiny. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount missionary discourse he uh, tells them do not think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. That separation for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Verse 38, He that does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For he who has found his life will lose it. But whoever has lost his life for my sake will find it. That if you'll follow Christ, even to the point of your own death, trusting in his ability to raise you from the dead, you'll have life. But those that will not heed, that will not believe, they choose to save their own lives. They will end in death. Revelation and separation. 
And then in the parabolic discourse, he's taught the masses in parables who had been not listening to him, because while seeing, they did not see. And while hearing, they did not hear, nor did they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing and will not understand. You will keep on seeing and will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their eyes, they scarcely hear, with, and their eyes they have closed. Otherwise, I w they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts in return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your eyes because they do hear. Once again, revelation and separation based off whether you see and hear or whether you don't. The wheat will be separated from the tares, the good fish from the bad fish. Then each of the five discourses is concluded with these same words. It happened when Jesus had finished these sayings, or these teachings, or these parables, these instructions, different things. It happened when he had finished. And it leads to a section of narrative where we see Jesus interacting with the people of Israel, and we see that dual theme of revelation and separation being played out again and again. God reveals truth through Jesus, and the truth divides people, separating them into two groups, those who receive the truth and those who do not. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. That's what Matthew's pointing out. In Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, it was predicted that a prophet would come from among their countrymen like Moses, and God would put his words in his mouth, and he would speak all that I had commanded. You see the revelation there in the prophecy of this greater Moses that would be coming. And the response of the people to that revelation is the fulfillment of the next verse, Deuteronomy 18, 19. It shall come to pass that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus is that greater prophet through which all the peoples will be divided based off will you hear and heed his words or not. After the Sermon on the Mount, we saw people receive and reject Jesus throughout the whole narrative. It almost alternated people that received, people who didn't. After the missionary discourse, we saw people receive and reject, uh, reject Jesus from 11.1 through 12.50. And now in 13.53 through 18.1, we're going to be looking at another long narrative section where this revelation and separation motif will again play a central role. In our last sermon, we saw that Jesus went back to his own town, Nazareth, and what did they do? They violently rejected Jesus, didn't they? Even seeking to throw him over a cliff. They didn't want his... He was an offense to them and they rejected his words. And now we move from Jesus' obscure hometown to the king's castle itself in 14, 1 and 2. Do you think that he's going to be better received in the king's castle than he was in his hometown? Well, we'll be breaking this sermon up into two, two sermons. This section up into two sermons. 14, 1 through 12. 1 through 2 speaks of Herod Antipas' re reaction to Jesus, and it's thus part of our immediate narrative. And verses 3 through 12 serve as a flashback that explains the events that led to John the Baptist's execution. We're going to be handling that flashback by itself next week, and today we're just going to hone in on Matthew 14, 1 and 2. So let's read that together. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And that's why miraculous, miraculous powers are at work with him. Crazy stuff. We're going to focus in today on Jesus' fame, first of all. John the Baptist's fate and Herod's folly. That's where we're going to be headed in our points. We're going to begin with Jesus' fame. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. News about Jesus has now spread all the way to the king's castle, hasn't it? Notice I keep saying the king's castle and not to the king. Well, the reason for that is that Herod is technically not a king. Herod who was approached, the Herod who was approached by the Magi all the way back in chapter 2 was a king, but this dude ain't that dude, right? So the Herod, that Herod in chapter 2 was Herod the Great, and it's this Herod's father. Herod the Great from chapter 2 is this Herod's father. And when Herod the Great died, the realm was divided, and this Herod, who's known as Herod Antipas, was assigned as ruler over Galilee and Perea. And Rome didn't honor rulers of such small areas with the title of king. But Herod Antipas still lived in the same kingly quarters as his father, King Herod, had lived. 
And that's why in verse 1 we see Matthew used this lesser title of tetrarch. The word tetrarch literally means a ruler over a fourth part. A tetrarch was actually two notches below a king. An intrarch, which is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11.23, was a ruler over a larger area even than a tetrarch, but was still not recognized as a king. And that brings us to another alleged biblical inaccuracy or contradiction. I like to point these out when I see them. We avoid contradictions to our own peril because it gives unbelievers the, the excuse to put their hands on the steps and say, See, I told you y'all don't have any answers. We've got answers, don't we? But here's the alleged contradiction. In Mark 6, 14, it, it calls him, parallel passage, King Herod heard of it. And his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist risen from the dead. It's Mark's telling, he calls him King Herod. <gasps> the horror! Right? Mark calls Herod Antipas King Herod, and Herod wasn't a king. So much for inerrancy, right? Let's throw our Bibles away and get on with our meaningless lives because once we die, it's certainly just the end. There's no afterlife. There's no resurrection from the dead because Mark said King Herod. I think that might be a little bit of an overreaction, don't y'all? Right? As usual, there's a very good answer for uh, Mr. Skeptic McSkeptic Pants. We've got an answer for him. And there were official titles, and then there were colloquial titles. Titles that might not be accurate, but were still commonly used. How many of you know that humans tend to like to have their ego scratched? Anybody? We like to be built. Have you ever read a resume? The B average student, he got A's, didn't he? The guy that went to... To Harvard, I mean, the guy that went to uh, Walker State, he probably went to Yale, right? That's, that we kind of embellish. We want to build ourselves up. We want to be recognized as higher than we really are. The guy that went to Bible college, well, he went to seminary. It's just, it doesn't even matter if it's in Christian circles or not. People like to notch themselves up. Natural human vanity is a thing. And tetrarchs like to be called king. And people who want to curry favor with the local tetrarch do you think that they were prone to calling king like he liked to be called? Well, of course he, they were. Therefore, within the province where a tetrarch ruled, they were often inaccurately called king. So when you referred to them, you might refer to them as tetrarch, which they technically were, but when you did call them that, like if you called them that in front of them, it'd probably make them mad. And when you're in front of them, often you'd call them king. So it would kind of vacillate. Sometimes you'd call them one thing and sometimes you'd call them another, even in the writings. And that was certainly true of Herod Antipas. So Mark calls Herod king like the residents of Galilee. Matthew calls him the more precise title, Tetrarch. But then if you look ahead, Matthew refers to Herod as king here in the same text in verse 9, just eight verses later. Do you think Matthew forgot? You think he got confused? No, it kind of was used interchangeably because the exact title, the true title, was Tetrarch, but the colloquial title was King. We see that same flexibility in extra-biblical historical documents as well. You say, well, you're just saying that to try to make the Bible not contradict itself. No, I'm saying that because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Because even in uh, like the intrarch, Archelaus, is said by Josephus, not a biblical document, that he reigned as king. But he was an intrarch. But Josephus used it interchangeably as well in that way for the same exact reason. So we're not being inconsistent. There are no contradictions or inaccuracies in the Bible. Language is simply flexible flexible in real life, and the Bible is real life. And we've got to keep that in mind. These are historical things, historical documents, and they should be treated with historical precision, like any other historical document. Only this one's better because it's inerrant, right? But back to the point. Jesus' ministry could not be ignored. It's actually astounding that a government official could uh, be so inattentive to something this huge going on in his own, in his own jurisdiction. Antipas apparently had his head in his sand his entire life. His dad knew, King Herod the Great, knew and believed the Old Testament prophecies, but he believed in them as a threat to his power, not as a comfort. But he did believe. He knew that he was the first non-Judah-born king since the line began, and he knew how the Jews understood Genesis 49.10, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And that means the one to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. That there was a prediction all the way back, 1,600 years before in Genesis, that said once the ruler's staff departs from the line of Judah, then the, the Messiah, Shiloh, the one to whom it really belongs, will show up. And that absolutely freaked Herod the Great out. It made him a paranoid psychopath. 
The Bible presents him as a paranoid psychopath, and guess what other history presents him as? A paranoid psychopath. Because that's what he was, and he was because of his faith in the Scriptures. His faith, as far as I believe they're right, but I'm in rebellion against them. So when Herod became king, the scepter had officially departed from Judah because he was, from the tri- from, uh, he was an Edomite. Add to that that the 490 years prophecy made by Daniel in the Old Testament was, was due to be fulfilled in 31 AD, that the Messiah was going to be plumb aside by that time. And you get you got people at that time like Anna and Simeon right at the, the time that Jesus was born. They were waiting in the temple so that they could see the Christ brought into the temple to be dedicated according to the law in Luke 2, 22-38. You have people wondering about John the Baptist at the start of John the Baptist's ministry in Luke three fifteen, where it says the people were in a state of expectation and were all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the promised Christ who was to come. Herod had to know all this stuff, didn't he? Herod Antipas, he had been alive his whole life, you know? So he had been around. You know, and you, and you see the expectation even in the book of John, the, the woman on the well. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will declare to us all things, pointing back to that Deuteronomy 18.18 18 text that I quoted earlier. You have Roman historians writing in the first century of a worldwide messianic expectation. Man, this is so big. Skeptics ignore the truth. They blame us for being closed-minded. They're closed-minded. They won't look at what actually is in space, time, in the Bible, and in history books. They won't. Listen to uh, uh, Suetonius, a Roman historian. He said, An ancient and settled persuasion prevailed throughout the East that the fates had decreed someone to proceed from Judah who would attain universal empire. Tacitus, another Roman historian, he, many were persuaded that it was contained in the ancient books of their priests that at, the very, at that very time the East should prevail and someone should proceed from Judah and he would possess dominion. Everybody's expecting a king to rise up from the people of Israel. Even pagans were. So Herod the Great did what any rational-minded, power-hungry, evil, murderous man would do. Right? He killed everybody that he thought might remotely be a threat to his own reign. This is not Herod Antipas of our text. This is Herod's daddy. He killed his own brother-in-law. He killed his own uncle. He killed his wife's grandfather. He killed his wife's mother. He killed his favorite wife. He had more than one. He, he killed his servant who aided him in all the aforementioned executions. He killed two of his sons. You talk about paranoid. The guy was nuts, wouldn't he? Because of his belief in the Scriptures and this expectation that there was a promised king who was going to thwart his throne, take his throne away from him. Do you think little Antipas might have heard Daddy talk about the justification for his actions? Antipas was 16 years old before Daddy died. He was actually there. He would have been alive, a 16-year-old young man, when the Magi made their trek from the Far East to Jerusalem led by the mysterious star. Tradition has confused the story so as to skew our understanding of what this episode looks like. We think of three magi riding on three camels with three little bitty boxes, don't we? With trace amounts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? That's kind of how we got it in our head. Something that could be easily overlooked. No, these magi, there were likely more than three. The only reason we think three is because there were three gifts. It doesn't give us a number. There were likely a bunch of them. And these magi were rich, educated, influential men. They undoubtedly had quite the entourage with him. Rich men of that, with that kind of wealth they were carrying with them would have likely came with a miniature army, many men guarding them, camels, perhaps even elephants. We don't know for sure, but we do know that the spectacle was so big that King Herod himself took notice and was troubled by it. Right? The commotion was so big that verse 3 in chapter 2 tells us that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. A big thing happened when Herod Antipas was, was 16 years old, centered around the promise of a king who had showed up on the scene, right? 
And Herod the Great, his daddy, believed the Scriptures, so he sprung to action. And when Herod the Great heard that, he was troubled all Jerusalem with him. And he gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And any scribe worth his salt knew where the Messiah was going to be born. And they, they cited Micah 5.2 in Bethlehem of Judea, for this was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And then, of course, what did King Herod do? He got every child two years older or younger killed in the whole area, in all of Bethlehem. You think Herod Antipas might have noticed all this crazy stuff centered around this promised messianic king? Of course he had. Herod would have had all those childhood memories, and now a little over 30 years later... He could hardly avoid hearing about the popular movement focused around Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 4, 23-25, we see what Jesus' pattern was after he was baptized by John. John's arrested and Jesus begins his ministry. He's going through all Galilee, which is where Herod Antipas was reigning as Tetrarch, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the, of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread through all of Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Then we see Jesus' ministry advance with more of the same signs and wonders. And it says in, in 9.24, after he raises a girl from the dead, that news spread throughout all the land. He heals two blind men a few verses later, and they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. But once this news about Jesus spreads to Herod Antipas, his mind is not taken to the obvious conclusion. You know, unbelievers are unbelievers because they want to be unbelievers. That's why. So instead of jumping to the obvious conclusion, he's not carried to, I bet this is the king daddy was so worried about. He, he didn't even go there in his rebellious heart like his dad. His dad believed, but rebelliously believed. He didn't even jump to the obvious conclusion he had heard about his entire life. Instead, his mind was taken back to John the Baptist. And that's how we learn of John the Baptist's fate. The next thing here in our text. And... Herod's response to this fame getting to him about Jesus' ministry growing and expanding the miraculous works at work in him is he says to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead. John the Baptist's death, it kind of, we've not heard about it. We don't, he's never, Matthew's never told us he even is dead. And the way we find, about it, find out about it is that Herod hears about Jesus and then infers that it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Surprise. But it kind of takes you off guard a little, but it shouldn't. We were introduced to John as the prophesied forerunner of Christ early in the book, weren't we? And John the Baptist was one who emerged on the scene as the first prophet in 400 years, calling his people in Matthew 3, 2, to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hey, guys, when we think kingdom of heaven, we think some sort of spiritual, you know, sit in a, in a circle and contemplate your navel kind of spiritual only kingdom. When they thought of kingdom of heaven, they thought of a king... Of, the, of heaven and earth. They thought of it different than we do. So when, when John the Baptist is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, King Jesus is on the scene. All the other kings better take notice and everybody better repent and get ready for this messianic figure that we've all been supposed to be waiting on. And in Simeon, been sitting in a temple 30 years ago, he's here. And we better get ready for him. Because the whole earth is going to be separated based off your response to this king. You better get ready to listen to this king. Because there's going to be revelation from him and separation based off whether you repent and listen and heed him or not. This announcement of the arrival of the kingdom assumes the arrival of the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And by the end of chapter 3, John has identified Jesus as this promised Christ and baptized him as the one who would fulfill the demands of the law by perfectly walking in its straight paths. But it's clear that John expected Jesus' ministry to look quite differently than it ended up looking. Jesus was expect, I mean, John was expecting Jesus to thump some heads, so to speak. Right? And he was expecting that the head thumping would ensue forthright. He was thinking it was going to be right now. 
It was coming. So in John's preaching in chapter 3, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And in verse 10 through 12, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, speaking of Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that ain't talking about Pentecostal fire. That's talking about judgment fire. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into his barns, those who heed him, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's what John the Baptist was preaching. And dude, John the Baptist was a firebrand. Fearless. Unapologetic. Unafraid of anybody and anything. John's message of repentance wasn't vague at all. John not only spoke against the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, he also spoke out directly against Herod himself. The Tetrarch. Why not, right? Given that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king who would establish an everlasting kingdom, squashing his enemies under his feet, what did John have to fear? So he goes straight for the jugular. Y'all think that we're prone to meddling at Maynardville Fellowship? You better check this out. This, this is what John did. 14, 3 through 4 in our sermon next week, which we'll, we'll cover in more detail. When Herod had, for, Herod had John arrested, and here's why. He, he had, John kept saying that it wasn't lawful for him to have his current wife because his current wife had pre- previously been his brother's wife, Philip's wife. And he calls out the king for an illegitimate marriage. And, and when it says that, he, that John, John had been saying, it's a continuous thing. It's like he, he didn't say it once. He's saying it all the time to everybody that will listen. Can't you just imagine how John's condemnation of Herod came about? John is preaching the good news that God has finally sent a righteous king in the person of Jesus. And people say, but what about Herod? And John replies, Herod? The man who married his brother's wife? That Herod? Is that the one you're talking about? That's your hope? That's who the king is? That unrighteous man is not God's ruler. He's under God's judgment. He will be winnowed out. And then, even in the midst of John's call to repentance and his warning of judgment coming from God's true king Jesus, Herod has the gall to take John into custody. Right? What do you think Jesus would do? What would we expect Jesus to do? What do you think John expected Jesus to do when John was arrested? Well, what would any up-and-coming political aspiration, you know, man with up and, up, a man with political aspirations, an up-and-comer, what would they do? Well, they'd probably take inventory, wouldn't they? Multitudes had followed John. Jesus could have been, hey, John had a whole lot of followers who were loyal to him. Hey, there's even more people following Jesus, according to John 4, 1 through 3. He baptized even more than John. And, you know, prominent people were convinced we have... Uh, Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Pharisees, meets with Jesus by night saying, hey, we know you're a teacher come from God, so they've got some connections. Jesus had the clout to start a coup, didn't he? He could have overthrown everyone with the support he had. And let's be honest, the the miraculous powers, they sure wouldn't hurt anything either, would they? If he can use his powers for good and healing, then he can use them in awesome for destruction, right? Absolutely. So Jesus didn't have, but Jesus didn't have political aspirations. He wasn't hoping to become king. He was king. He he didn't have to be sitting in a throne in a castle to be king. He could be the king wandering in the desert preaching the gospel to people and healing the sick. He didn't have to have the prominent position in society for him to know he was king of kings and lord of lords. He did not have to defeat an earthly king. His mission was to defeat the prince of the power of the air. And he would do that on a cross, not with a sword. Isn't that good news? So, Jesus' response to John's arrest was not what any mere man would have expected. It certainly wasn't what John expected. Look, look with me. I'm going to have you turn here to Matthew 4.12. Simple little verse, but let's actually think about it. Now when Jesus, 
Let's think about that. When Jesus, the true spirit-anointed king of Israel, the promised mighty messianic deliverer, right? When Jesus heard that John, and who is John? The king's official Herod, his herald, his friend, and a fellow preacher of righteousness. So when Jesus, that king, heard that his herald, friend, and fellow preacher of righteousness, John, had been taken into custody by the illegitimate, unrighteous, crony ruler who was appointed by Roman authorities and not anointed by God, he, Jesus, what did he do? Withdrew into Galilee. That's not what you're expecting, is it? That's, that's, not, that, that, that's, not what, that's not how we think. That's not how we win, is it? He withdrew into Galilee. The word for withdrew here actually is the word that would be used to, to retire or to withdraw from battle. He didn't charge into Jerusalem where Herod held John. He withdrew into Galilee. In Matthew 11, 2-3, John was puzzled and discouraged as he waited in vain for, John, for Jesus to rescue him. Turn now to Matthew 11, 2-3. I want to look at that together. We're not going to be turning around a lot more, but I want us to see kind of this John's fate was predictable. In Matthew 11, 2-3, John was puzzled and discouraged as he waited in vain for Jesus to rescue him. When John, while in prison, starting at verse 2, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? Some people interpret this question as an evidence that John was beginning to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. But I think that this question, okay, this question seems to be best understood as a kind of manly challenge. Are you going to step up and do what you're supposed to do or not? You're supposed to be busting some heads. I said the axe was laid at the root of the tree. I said your winnowing fork was in hand. Are you going to do what you're supposed to do or not? I think it's John the Baptist in his, in his manliness, his aggressiveness, his being the forerunner. I've got to goad the Messiah and get him to do what he's supposed to do. Trying to challenge Jesus to play the man. Stop being a hippie, healing, flower child Messiah and get down here and bust some heads, Jesus. Why do I think that fits better? Because right immediately after Jesus' answer to John's disciples, Jesus defends John, indicating that he hasn't wavered from his previous confidence. Look at Matthew eleven seven through 8 As these men, John's disciples, were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John to defend his reputation. He didn't want the crowds thinking that John was wishy-washy, that John was a big pansy, because John was anything but. He was not a malicose man. He was not a softy. Right, Matthew? Right. So, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you, and more than a prophet. For of those born of woman, there has not arisen a man greater than John the Baptist. He says, no, this man's faith wasn't rocked. You're misunderstanding the spirit of the question from these disciples, from, from his disciples. The bold, masculine confidence fits with what we know about John's character, doesn't it? It seems as if John is doubting Jesus' method, not his identity. He's questioning what Jesus is doing, not who Jesus is. So, and let's look at Jesus' answer to, John, to John's question through his disciples. Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Jesus did not answer with a simple yes or no. He knew that wouldn't have satisfied John. Jesus knew what would give the John the most comfort. And it's what should give us the most comfort. Do you know what it is? The Scriptures. Jesus' words were unmistakably drawn from Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. The blind, 11.5, the blind receive their sight. Here, here, go and tell John, report what you see and heard. The blind have received their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. John's mind would have been carried to Isaiah 35.5 and 61.1 and 26.19 and 29.18. He's drawn from all these texts, 42.18. The blind receive their sight is in these texts in Isaiah. The lame walk is in these Isaiah texts. Lepers being cleansed is in Ezekiel 36.25. Deaf people hearings in Isaiah 35.5 and 6. And the final item on the list, the poor have the gospel preached to them, is in Isaiah 61.1. But what's left out? What comes right after that? 
Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Do you think John might have wanted to hear that part? I'd say he probably wanted that part, but Jesus didn't mention that part. But he added something that's not prophesied any, anywhere in the entire Old Testament that the Messiah would do. What did I leave out? The dead are raised. He says, hey, John, you see all these things I'm doing? I'm going to tell you, I'm doing all these things. There's one of these things I'm not going to do for you. I'm not going to set you free from prison, but let me tell you what I can do. Even though you're going to die in prison, you're going to raise again because I am the resurrection and the life. It's good news, isn't it? He said, blessed are those that do not take offense at me. I'm not going to Messiah the way you want me to Messiah, but I am the Messiah. Just trust me and don't don't stumble over me, John. Heed me and follow me and trust me regardless of whether things work out in your life the way they want you to. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. Follow Christ regardless of whether things work out in your life the way you want them to or not. We have to. To whom else shall we go? For He alone has the words of everlasting life. Look at all the evidence that is there that He is who He said He was. If He doesn't uh, jihad just right to your demands, that doesn't give you the right to rebel against Him. He's still King of kings. And the whole world will be separated based off their obedience and their trust in Him. John, trust me through this prison episode, even through your death. There's a resurrection coming. That's where Jesus points John At one level, the answer was straightforward. Jesus definitely claimed that these messianic visions were being fulfilled in the miracles he performed and that his preaching the good news to the poor. But the second more subtle level of response is this, you're going to die in prison. All four of Isaiah's passages also refer to judgment in the immediate context. Isaiah 35.4, for example, one of those where he quotes the good parts of the miracles, the healing and restorative miracles, it ends in your God will come with vengeance and with divine retribution. Jesus doesn't quote that part, but it's still in the backdrop. And Isaiah 61.2, the day of the vengeance of our God. He's, he's basically saying, hey, I'm doing this, this part right now, and that part that you thought was really quick, that it, that it was coming forthright, as I said earlier. It was about to ensue. It's coming, but it's not coming as quick as you think. I'm not going to do it the way you think. Thus, Jesus was elusively responding to John the Baptist's question. The, the blessings promised for the end time have broken out, and it's proven here, but the judgments are delayed. But he says, John, trust me for both. Jesus did not have to... Uh, intervene on John's timeline because he can raise the dead. And that takes us to Herod's folly. Herod actually thought John the Baptist had been raised but didn't think Jesus did it. He's a superstitious, crazy response he has, isn't it? Look at Herod's folly. And he said to his servants, after he hears the reports of Jesus, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Rather than respond to Jesus' fame by carefully considering who Jesus might be, and did he not have the backdrop to have understood it? Had he not been raised around Herod the Great, who who might have been in rebellion against it, but really did understand that there was a messianic figure who was to come, who was to show up on the scene? Did Herod not know about all the stuff going on, this messianic expectation, the Daniel prophecies? Did he have no knowledge of it? Everybody else in the whole empire knows, but the Tetrarch over it all doesn't. He might have known, but he suppressed the truth in his unrighteousness. We can know things and then put what we do know out of our minds so we can keep living the way we want to live. Can't we? Herod turned to fanciful speculation. He connected it to John the Baptist's fate for which he was guilty. Isn't it amazing to see how the same people who ignore Scripture will turn to fortune tellers, palm readers, tarot cards, and magic crystals? You ever notice that? Hey, I can't believe you believe that stupid Bible. I'm going to get my tarot cards and see what are going to happen to you tomorrow for such foolishness. I mean, it's absurd, isn't it? People who reject God's truth still have an awareness of right and wrong. And they often become superstitious when they do wrong because deep down they know that this is a moral universe. And if this is a moral universe, where do the morals come from? Where is right and wrong rooted? How is there a such thing? A, a, what, where, how do we explain guilt? A knowledge of right and wrong, of good and evil. And it's not 
arbitrary, but it's fixed in some unchanging standard. And the guilty, they know deep down, must not go unpunished. Such people follow horoscopes and believe almost any bizarre spiritual idea that comes their way, don't they? When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They end up believing in anything. People that don't believe in God, they don't start believing in nothing. They end up believing in anything. Herod Antipas was like that. Unlike his father, Herod the Great, Antipas was not a thinking man. In his rebellion, Herod the Great turned to investigation, searching the Scriptures to see where Christ was to be born so he could carry out his foolish attempt to thwart the plan of God. But Herod Herod Antipas turned to mere foolish speculation. By stating first, he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Notice Herod Antipas' confidence in his foolish assertion. He doesn't say, Do you think this might be? Have you ever noticed how absolutely confident people are with their foolish opinions? Their garbage opinions, they'll say, this is what's going on. Right? They do it, don't they? He doesn't just consider the full-hearted idea in his heart. He tells others as if it's a fact as well. I mean, there were rocks and it rained on the rocks for millions and millions and millions of years and then it turned to a primordial soup and then out of the smoop emerged single-celled organism and now here we are. Duh! Where you been? And they say it confidently. As if, man, how do you not know this? And they know it for certain because of their inerrant science textbooks that are proven wrong every year. The science books change all the time because the science is constantly changing. Trust the science? Well, which science? And on which day? Because it changes all the time, doesn't it? But man, they sure do know today because it's what science says, don't they? Well, he says, Ah, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. Godless people seem to evangelize people to believe their damnable lies more than many Christians try to convince people of their life-giving truth, don't they? Just a little thought would have put this foolish thought to bed for Herod Antipas. John the Baptist and Jesus were basically the same age, weren't they? Jesus was alive before John was dead and had been for most of John's life, right? They had grown up side by side. They were contemporaries who had served side by side. Just a bit of asking around would have led to Herod learning that Jesus and John were actually cousins and that John had baptized Jesus. But Herod couldn't be bothered by thinking... Isn't that the way people are too? I don't believe the Bible. Really? Have you read it? Nope. Oh. What about all the contradictions in the Bible? Which one? Oh, there's just all kinds of them. Which one? Uh, You know, all of them. Uh, Which one? Well, the one where it says Herod's a king and Herod's a a tetrarch. Which one is it? Well, uh, and then you explain it to them. Well, I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about all the other ones. Which one? They don't have one. They have the, I don't want to believe this, so I'm going to say all the contradictions of the Bible. I'm not going to investigate any of it. I'm going to throw it away because you guys are unscientific, but I'm scientific. No, it's them that are close-minded. It's them who won't consider whether these things might actually be true. They're not noble like the noble Bereans who searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so. No. They're comfortable with their life, and they just decide to believe whatever feels right and feels best to them. Tragically, many people around Herod were pointing him to the Old Testament Scriptures where he could have found the truth about the coming Messiah, but he wouldn't hear it. In Mark's account, in Mark 6, 14-16, it says, King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that's why these miraculous powers are at work in them. Some people were saying that. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, no, he's, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, It's John who I beheaded. He's risen from the dead. He grabbed hold of that one and wouldn't look to consider. Maybe he is one of these prophets. Maybe I should search the Scriptures, see if the Old Testament told us about a prophet who was to come, who, to whom should be the obedience of all the peoples. Maybe I should consider that there might be another alternative that might impact the way I live, and maybe I need to surrender to this king that's greater than I am. No. No, it's, it's just John the Baptist raised from the dead. Superstition and a bad conscience make a strong couple. In his guilt, he was panicked and irrational. He cleaved to the least likely explanation instead of looking back to the explanations that he had heard of since he was a boy. He put those out of his mind. 
Well, I know all that stuff I've always heard. That's not true. This is more plausible. That John the Baptist raised from the dead and raised as a full-grown man that looks completely different. Uh, and now, since he rose from the dead, even though he didn't do miracles before, now he's able to do miracles. I mean, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's where he ended up. But, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod had it all wrong. And answers were in the revelation that he continually ignored. Jesus didn't have miraculous powers at work in him because he, as John the Baptist had raised from the dead, that wasn't it. And we don't have to speculate concerning the meaning and purpose of miracles. People think that the Bible is a book filled with, filled with miracles on every page, don't they? They think that they need to actually read it because it's not. It's not a book with miracles on every page. The truth of the matter is that miracles are really quite, quite rare in the Scriptures. Most of the miracles in the Old Testament happened in two relatively brief periods of Bible history in the days of Moses and his protege Joshua and during the ministries of Elijah and his protege Elisha. Neither of those periods lasted much more than a hundred years and each of them saw a huge number of miracles unheard of in other areas. Even during those two time periods, miracles weren't exactly the order of the day. They were still somewhat sporadic. The miracles that, it, that happened involved men who were extraordinary messengers of God. Moses, who represented the law, and Elijah, who represented the prophets. And now, what do we have? We have Jesus, who's the perfect prophet, priest, king. He comes and his miracles are pointing to him as the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was pointing for. That's the purpose of the miracles. That miracles were to authenticate the ministry of the messenger. And only a very few messengers that are centered around the redemptive works of God throughout history and the most pivotal points. Aside from those two intervals in the Old Testament, the only supernatural events recorded in Scripture were little isolated incidents. These miracles occurred during particular periods for the specific and explicit purpose of authenticating a new message from God. Moses was enabled to perform miracles to authenticate his ministry before Pharaoh. Right? But did Pharaoh heed? We heard about that this morning, didn't we? Pharaoh was hardened and he was destroyed. The miracles authenticated, but it still didn't convince Herod, I mean Pharaoh, because of his hard heart, right? And then Elijah was given miracles to authenticate his ministry before Ahab. But it still didn't convince Ahab, did it? And Ahab and, Je and Jezebel both were, ended up dead because of the rejection of God's word through these prophets. And now we've got Jesus... And the miracles are there to convince you, Herod. You fool. Why are you speculating? He is who he says he is. He's the expected Messiah. Look, search the scriptures. You already know all these things. You've heard them since you were a young boy. Your dad wouldn't submit to it. You need to now hear the revelation. Your dad heard it but wouldn't heed. You need to hear and heed and be the wise man who builds his house on the rock. But no. I'm just going to speculate. This is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. <laughs> a goofy. This promised Messiah, who was to be the new and better Moses, was to usher in his kingdom with authenticating signs and wonders, just like those that authenticated the ministries of Moses and Elijah. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything written in the law of Moses. He was the culmination of the warnings of the prophets, which exemplified in Elijah. The book of Isaiah contains perhaps the most vivid and direct messianic prophecies of the Old Testament where it says that the deaf will hear the words of the book. Out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted will increase their gladness in the Lord. The needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like the deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. When John, when John asked... Are you the one or should we ask for another? Jesus pointed to these. Why? Because it was these miracles that authenticated his ministry. But Herod wouldn't take notice. And that's exactly how Bible-believing people in Jesus' day understood Jesus' healing ministry as authenticating proof 
This fact is most clear from the book of John. Many believed in his name, observing the signs that he was doing. John 2, 3, uh, 23. And then in John 3, 2, we talked about Nicodemus earlier. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? Because no man can do these miracles that you do except for God be with him. John 7, 31. Many of the crowds believed in him and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he won't perform more signs than that which this man does, will he? No, it was the miracles that were authenticating the message of Jesus and Herod still wouldn't hear. So Herod was afraid that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead, coming after him in vengeance. But the truth was even more ominous for King Herod Antipas. Jesus was not John the Baptist raised from the dead. Jesus was instead the very reason why that John would one day be raised from the dead though. Death is not the end for those who hear the words of Christ and do them, but for rebels like Herod, John the Baptist's unheeded call to repentance in view of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the person of Christ should be frightening indeed because the day would come when he would be winnowed out. John, in Matthew 3, 10 through 12, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into fire. It didn't happen then, but it is a certainty. No one escapes the judgment of God. Herod doesn't stop, though, in just rejecting John the Baptist. Herod ends up running into Jesus again, doesn't he? If you remember Pilate... He sends him off. He wants Herod to judge him. So it's a Jew judging him instead of Pilate because he doesn't want any part of it. He didn't want to have to fool with it. And he goes to Herod and you know what Herod wants him to do? He wants him to do a miracle for him. Do a miracle right here in front of me. But it's a morbid curiosity. He's just like, hey man, I've always wanted to see you do a trick. You know, you know speak. Woo, woo. You know, God doesn't do that for us. You know that? He doesn't do that for us. Herod had all these evidences. Why? And Jesus, he didn't do any of the miracles. He stood there silent. He didn't open his mouth. He just stood there. He refused to do more miracles. Why? Because if Herod really cared about his identity, he already believed in the miracles that he heard about. But even though he believed in the miracles he heard about, he refused to investigate it to find out how he should live in light of the fact that Jesus had appeared. And Jesus is like, no, more revelation isn't going to change you and cause you to repent, and I'm not doing it. And Herod... He puts a fancy robe on him after beating him up a little bit, roughs him up. They treat him with contempt, mock him, dress him in a gorgeous robe, and they send him back to Pilate. And then Jesus ends up being crucified. King Herod won. No. No. Jesus conquered the prince of the power of the air through his death on the cross. He became the exalted son of God. Death couldn't hold him. He arose from the dead, from the dead victorious over everything, appeared to all his disciples, giving us a confidence that nothing can ever stop us and that all the kings of the earth will one day bow their knee because they are temporal and he is eternal. And now we say, John wasn't the loser. You beheaded him and he got to raise Jesus wasn't a loser. You consented to his crucifixion. He raised and caused the resurrection of all those who followed him. But there is a separation coming and those who don't, Herod is the one that ends up put under his feet. What will you, how will you respond to King Jesus? That's the dividing line. He's the new Moses. The dividing line of all of mankind is will you hear his words and do them? That is the point of separation. Are you in submission to what you do know? Are you trying to put God... God, if you'll do this, if you'll reveal yourself... You don't get to do that. All the evidence we need is here in the Scriptures and in the testimony of the apostles. Heed what you do know. And I'll tell you this, when you start heeding what you do know, He does show you more. He does. He'll, he reveals Himself to you in personal ways. But it starts with a submissive heart. Have you been... Insubmissive to King Jesus, align yourself to His ministry. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for, uh, for Jesus' fame spreading, for John the Baptist as His great herald, for the fact that His fate was ominous. It was terrible, but it wasn't permanent because Christ Jesus is who He said He was. He is the one that You sent to overcome the curse of death, to, to bring about the resurrection from the dead. 
God, give us great confidence in that. Lord, let us be fearless like John in the face of all of your enemies, even enemies in high and mighty and lofty places. God, never let us relent. Never let us back down. Give us courage, the righteous or as bold as a lion. Lord, make us righteous. Make us bold. Give us a faith that conquers all fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.